This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. I'm a bit happier now that the uh, heat wave in London has stopped. I don't know. Have you had a heat wave? Well, we had a mini heat wave. Yes, it's been quite hot and it now is very cool and quite rainy here. And it's, as you say, much, much better for reading and contemplating and thinking and sleeping and all that sort of thing. Although I know one of the things that is in the TLS this week is a book about insomnia. Now, one of my favourite sort of strands of book, there's a fantastic book by Samantha Harvey about insomnia. This is by Marie Dariusek, isn't it? Yes, who is, I suppose she's primarily a novelist, but she has written other non-fiction things. And she's pretty... I don't know how to say it. She's pretty out there, Marie Darius. You can sort of never tell what she's going to do next. But this is, I think, you know, this is really a journal of, a sort of journal about the fact that she just hasn't been able to sleep for years and kind of what it does to her and it throughout literature and how it's affected her. And I think this is right. She hopes that by the end of the book, when she's finished the book, when she hands it over, then she'll be able to sleep. So it's like, it's kind of fingers crossed. You feel like, you know, texting her. Not that I have her number, I hasten to add, and saying, can you sleep now? Did it work? Imagine if it didn't. You wrote a whole book about it and then you were like, I still can't sleep. It's a lot to put in, a lot of eggs to put in the basket of writing a book. It really is. She's always interesting, though. She's very stylish and interesting and sort of uncompromising. And Yes, her novels are great. And I'm going to be honest, I haven't read one for a long time, but very slender novels, quite shocking, a lot of them. And mm. I remember reading them quite a few years ago when she sort of first became very well known. But I'm very interested to read this. These kind of... Um, 
setting yourself challenges and hoping what books will do for you is something that we're interested in this week because we have a review of Camille Ralph's book. Camille is the poetry editor of the TLS and she's going to come on a bit later to explain, but she essentially sets herself a project, doesn't she? She does, yes. W.H. Auden threw out a challenge about 60 years ago to anyone who cared to pick it up, and she's picked it up. And we're also going to have a look at a lot of the fiction that we've actually been sort of talking about for the past few weeks, haven't we? Yes, we are. And we're delighted that Toby Lishtig, who often comes on the podcast to talk fiction and many other things, joins us to preview this autumn's noteworthy new novels. But first, in 1962, W.H. Auden published The Dyer's Hand, a collection of essays ranging from formal academic lectures to chatty and often very funny observations. Coming somewhere between the two, we might suspect, is his suggestion for how poets should be educated at what he calls the Daydream College for Bards, the daydream being Auden's own. Camille Ralphs, a poet and in her day job, the poetry editor of the TLS, decided to take Auden at his word and has published some of the results. And we are delighted that she can join us today to talk us through it. Camille, welcome. Many thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much for indulging me. Not at all. I think last time we were just talking about this. I think last time you were indulging me. Last time you came on, we were talking about Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) And I insisted on lots of sound effects, which... Though tempting, I will not insist upon this time because we're talking about something different. Lucy, if they suggest themselves, we shall put them in. I am here with my coconut halves, (laughs) ready to make a clip-clop horse. Glad to hear it, Alex. Thank you so much. (laughs) Now, Camille, this project of yours, it's a self-imposed project, isn't it? You gave yourself a lot of work. Where did it spring from? Well, I think at the time I was having a bit of an artistic crisis because I'd been rewriting the same suite of poems, getting nowhere for about three years. And I wanted a way of essentially resetting myself or finding a new direction and basically restoring my confidence because I started to feel as if I just couldn't write a poem anymore. I also felt like it was likely that nobody had had a go at this thing before and somebody should take it seriously, even if it is a bit tongue in cheek and see where it took me. And finally, it was lockdown at that time. And uh, Ah, I'd fled the London plague pit and gone to stay with my parents um, who had a garden and an oven that I could use. And everybody seemed to be cooking and gardening anyway. So I thought I could make it part of a larger course. I might as well. Because this is what he tells you you've got to do as a poet, isn't it, Auden? It's not just sitting at your desk waiting for the right words to come in the right order. You've actually got to do these technical and practical and manual things as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah some of it is as you say technical and focus very much on learning to manipulate language in all the useful ways but some of it is as you say practical so he clearly wants poets to be grounded in the real world and not just doing lots of navel gazing Let's have a look at the curriculum. It's brilliant. And it's a brilliant idea to just say, yeah, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure everyone read it and went, ha, ha, ha. But you've actually applied it. So there's five of them in the bit that I could see. Number one, in addition to English, at least one ancient language, probably Greek or Hebrew, though I think you might have had a bit of wiggle room on that, Camille, and two modern languages required, which is quite a lot. Yes, it is. Yeah. But, you know, we all did bits of uh, modern languages at school. And even though I didn't study any ancient languages then, I always wanted to learn Latin. So this gave me a good excuse to do that. So did you sit and learn Latin on your own? Yeah. Wheelock's Latin is a very good, very good textbook for this kind of thing, because 
it contains from the very beginning extracts from uh, poets like Virgil in you know the simpler bits of what they wrote so that you can feel from the beginning that you're actually making progress and translating poetry. Gosh, I thought you must have done some already. And also because you do talk about language in the journals bit, don't you, that, well, you've got that quote of, is it Goethe? Sorry, I should remember, saying, if you yes, don't yeah. know another language, you don't know your own language. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And they weren't talking about what a lot of us did in lockdown, which was have a go at the old Duolingo, are they? Just the sort of, oh, my cat is sitting on the shelf. It's much more brass tacks than that. It's much more about the structure of, of language and the civilization behind language, I suppose. Mm, it's that, but I think it's also because um, he mentions also in this syllabus that he wants comparative philology to be a focus for students. And that presumably is because poets love etymology, or a lot of poets at least love etymology and playing with word stems and coining new words and finding ways of making words interact with each other within a line or over the course of a poem. And that's easier to do, it turns out, if you have Latin. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant for boring your children, I find, by saying it comes from the Latin and then they just start to lose consciousness immediately. <laughs> so the second part of this is thousands of lines of poetry, says Auden. Thousands of lines of poetry in these languages would be learned by heart. Do you want to just give us a thousand or two, Camille, and we'll we'll just leave the tape running? This is exactly what I worried about when you invited me. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I said I wasn't going to do that as well. I couldn't help it. No, you, you did. It's okay. I knew that you'd um, betray me in this obvious manner. Yeah, Thousands is a lot, though, isn't it? It, it is doesn't a lot. really mean I don't, that. Um, yeah, I think that's the bit that's the most difficult of all of these, isn't it? And the most unreasonable, because you can pick up lines of poetry in your own language fairly easily but to do that in other languages is a real labor and I would suggest this would have to be a full-time daydream college for bards in order for you to manage that sort of thing so yeah I think you'd have to be Homer to be honest to be able to do that the third one brilliantly says that so this is good especially for the TLS the library would contain no books of literary criticism so there you are that's, that's all right none of that <laughs> that's it throw the them all out Exactly. Get the critics The out. only critical exercise required of students would be the writing of parodies. And that is in there, isn't it? In the uh, thing that I produced, in your yes, work, there yeah, are yeah, a yeah, bunch yeah. of parodies in there. Obviously, I can't escape the fact that literary criticism is a part of my life. <laughs> there is no escape from <laughs> yes, that. Yes, there's no escape. It's uh, I'm drowning in it. Uh, but I can, you know, maybe correct that a little bit by writing lots of imitations, I thought, um, and just engaging with it on a very simultaneously sincere and playful level. Mm, mm. Yes, because parodies sounds a bit, you sort of think of pastiche and stuff, but it's not that. Some of them are just, it's done in the style, but it's done with your own subject matter, isn't it? Your own content. Mm. Well, you can't help but bring yourself into it, is the thing, uh, because yeah, even if you try to read all the same books as another author and model your style on theirs completely, you would still be bringing your own life and times into it and uh, your own, you know, character and fascinations. So what were some of the imitations that you took on? Where did you go to the, in the poetic canon for them? Oh gosh, I tried to choose a mix of things that I knew I liked in my own work, to sort of lean into them. So for instance, there's Christopher Smart imitation I'm quite fond of because it, it has some similar things uh, to what I like to get up to when I'm just writing for myself. 
And also I tried to do some things I didn't really see in my own work and thought that I could benefit from learning or from watching myself mess it up. And I did about 70 of them in total from a lot of different poets in time periods. But of course, I turn out to be the thing that's common to them all. And in some cases, I ruin them. So I tried a John Ashbery one, for instance, and it's just it sounds nothing like him. It's completely too musical. And the bits where I try to sound sort of ironic or clever just don't come across right at all. In Auden's um, sort of curriculum, it says you have to do courses in prosody, rhetoric and comparative philology, which is, again, quite hardcore. And then every student would have to select three out of maths, natural history, geology, meteorology, which I can't really say right, if that's right, archaeology, mythology, liturgics and cooking. So we think you refer to at least two of those in the journal. Did you manage three or was it just two? I think, well, I started with a bit of an advantage because I have a degree in theology, which I chose to read as a sort of combo of liturgics and mythology, maybe, in its ways. Uh, but then I did do some more learning to cook than I had previously, and especially baking, like everybody else in that time. And I did some courses in archaeology and went and helped out on a dig up in Lindisfarne, which was very new to me. Mm, you write about that, and it's very striking at that passage the feeling of the bones and how intimate you are with them mountains of bones they had tens of thousands of bones they were just turning up it was um surprising <laughs> yeah and you were saying that you've come closer to that person whoever they were than probably anybody else had in their lifetime yes it's a horrible thing to think about but it was you know fascinating in its way as well mm. I suppose the absolute sort of you know most obvious question the bottom line is well, how does this help you to become a better poet? And this is how you'd gone into it to sort of, as you said, give yourself a kind of creative reset. And these things may, you know, to the listener like me, you may think, well, that I guess that means that you know more about archaeology, but how does it mean that you know anything more about poetry? How did it work? Well, I think, first of all, it um, gives you a connection to the world that isn't just being a poet and an understanding of the world that isn't just... I read poems and write poems and that's what I do. Um, you're also looking at the processes of time and how they have worked on people before you and how they will work on you and that sort of thing. And I imagine that's you know part of the reason why he suggests later in the syllabus, which I suppose we're going to get to soon, that people grow a garden and, and keep a domestic animal because he wants poets to be grounded. But he also wants them to be able to observe how things happen and change around them and yes essentially have something to write about that isn't just yourself also with the sort of fresh start creatively thing I think there's a lot to be said for learning a new thing helping you recover your feeling of self-efficacy essentially because you can plant tomato seeds one minute and see absolutely nothing for weeks and weeks and be squinting at them and thinking, oh, nothing's happening here. And then suddenly they shoot up and you have 24 gargantuan tomato plants that smother the windows and have to be moved outside. And that's something I thought about a lot when I was producing, you know, these hundreds of poems, um, many of which will never see daylight. I just thought, well, if I carry on, eventually, I'm sure that something will come of this. And that's a feeling that you don't often get as a person creating things. Well, it requires you, I suppose, also to become hard-hearted to the things that need to be weeded out. And I say this as the world's worst thinner of seedlings, because I can't, if I've had the success of a seedling coming up, I can't really 
I can't really bear to take it out, but of course you have to. And I guess you have to with lines and words and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of cultivation involved in all of these different areas that he talks about, really. I like the idea as well of it going, it's happening underground, something's happening somewhere, and then suddenly it comes up. So yes, Camille, we will be brief on number five, because otherwise we'll just start talking about gardening and Mm. dogs and cats and things. So you did do some gardening. It sounds extremely successful if you had 24 huge tomato plants, much better than I didn't say I had a lot of tomatoes. Well, (laughs) no, but you you had the plants. Maybe about 12 tomatoes. (laughs) Oh, that's still, I would, I would take that, I've got to say. And did you, were you able to look after an animal? Well, not at this point, no. And I didn't want to be one of those people who buy a a pet during lockdown and then have no time for it afterwards. But I have had pets previously in my life. So I felt like I could tick that one off and say that's that's done already. Yeah. Now, as you say, of course, I'm sure Auden didn't didn't need everyone to do everything. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if the idea was exactly to keep you grounded and gardening and time and pets and time. Actually, it's a different you have a different idea of it, don't you? And so you've got these pamphlets, which are some of the results, translations, imitations, constraints, and one of them is called journal when you write a bit about sort of how you came to it and how you did it. Have you made some of your own rules up here as well in the imitations and constraints? How did you choose what to translate or imitate? Uh, In the constraints area, I definitely made up some of my own stuff, things that he doesn't mention here or perhaps implies but doesn't say directly. So, for instance, he mentions prosody. Presumably he means English prosody by that, but I felt like I had already done English prosody as a teenager and undergraduate through books like John Hollander's Rhymes Reason and through practising a lot. So I decided I could use that bit instead to look at prosody in other languages and cultures. So there are poems in here from Kannada and Thai forms and metres from which I learned a lot about, you know, stress in meter not necessarily being everything, uh, how some uh, syllables are longer or heavier than others because of um, consonant clusters, for instance, or deeper vowels, and just things I hadn't thought about before, and I was surprised to find that I hadn't come across in other reading. And with the um, translations and the imitations, I think I was just drawn to things that caught my eye or sounded challenging in some way. For instance, the translation of Gavriel uh, de Chavin's poem about a nightingale, where he doesn't use the letter R at all in the Russian original because he wants to demonstrate Russian's musical qualities. Uh, I did, in my version of the poem, also not use the letter R, and I tried to keep to his verse form too. And I tried to do that with as many of the formal translations as I could. There's something A.E. Stallings says in an essay about translation and rhyme and that sort of thing. She says that translators who translate poems that rhyme into poems that don't rhyme because they claim keeping the rhyme is impossible without doing violence to the poem have done violence to the poem. And I think that's (laughs) pretty good. Yes, yes, it's a, it's a good, clear way of putting it. In the constraints as well, you're sometimes you're, well, I suppose you're, there's a lot of formal constraints as well, aren't you? You're using these unusual forms, like the Tertzanel or the mm, Rondel, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. something which I didn't, I mean, I might have guessed eventually if you'd, you know, quizzed me a lot, but the, the beautifully named Standard Habby. 
<laughs> because I I knew what I knew what it sounded like when I read the poem, but I didn't. If you'd said to me what's the standard habby, I, I, I would have just said I have absolutely no clue. Well, I still have absolutely habit. no clue. So well, I there you go, and I don't think I would work it out. So I need to. Oh, know. it's um, it's just another name for the Burns stanza, you know, like the um, to a to a mouse to a louse to a, that kind of thing. Uh huh. I just did one to a moth because I was very upset about moths at the time. It, it comes across. She's really <laughs> mad with the moth. I might, I might no. memorise it and shout it at all future moths. I would like that. I think they need to learn to fear us a little bit more. Um, but the Olympian stuff, almost Olympian stuff in there, there's a poem called A Cad Eye, which is the number of syllables in the line and the number of lines in each stanza is modelled on the number pi. It seems a bit ridiculous, but it came out quite well. I was surprised to find and then there are, as you say, things like the terzanel, uh, which are quite strict, closed forms. This kind of thing is all Ordinesque in its way as well, because he quite famously, I think, said, um, blessed be all metrical rules that forbid automatic responses and free us from the fetters of self. Hmm. So this is the idea, this was his idea and the thing that you also responded to was that by, you know, what almost sounds paradoxical or contradictory, that by making yourself follow really clear stipulations you actually do end up freeing yourself yeah because oh gosh we're getting into all kinds of weird deterministic territory now aren't we Hurrah! But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you know you go into writing something thinking that you have a particular thing you want to say but if you're blocked from saying that by you know using a particular form then you have to find a new way of saying it and it may well turn out that the new way you have to find this more inventive way is better not only because it will feel more inevitable once it's um transferred into its formal appearance on the page but also because it's not the first thing that your brain reached for there's this idea that some poets had in the sort of mid 20th century, like Allen Ginsberg of first thought, best thought. And in some poetry, sure, maybe that works. But a lot of the time, first thought isn't necessarily best thought in poetry as in life. <laughs> yes, it's a romantic idea, isn't it? You know, and then saying, oh, it's, it's all about kind of inspiration. Certainly goes at least as far back as Coleridge. And as far back as Coleridge, they're saying, oh, I wrote this in half an hour. And they just didn't, because then afterwards yeah. you find a notebook with all the they're crossings lying. out. And the... <laughs> well. You know, because it sounds great to go, I just I just wrote it like that. But actually, I don't think that's any better than saying I wrote it and then I worked really hard on it for six months and, you know, and now I think it's done. Which form or poet to translate or sort of um, discipline did you find the most rewarding or the most difficult, do you think? Uh, the most difficult was probably this Welsh form whose name I'm definitely going to mispronounce to the point of murder. I'm so sorry. England beer crooker for the works of Gavin Munro and Neri Oxman. But the form is a Welsh bardic form, which relies on this interlocking of consonants and vowel sounds in a very particular way. And then you have to repeat that in each different stanza. And the, the results sound beautiful. I'll just read a tiny bit now. He timbered and time-biding, sidles through his lush plant, his paired, bushy, hardened garden, guiding, germinations, jammed notions, and unbridled form with his enormous patience, stations, motions as not striped things, not striplings, but lampshades or chairs fit for kinged fairies, sap frond-wrapped, long ripplings. You can imagine how long that took. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds wonderful. It sounds lovely, um, <laughs> if you can figure out what on earth it means. But 
it took hours and hours to you know figure out how to make all of those sounds interlock in a way that is actually to some extent sensible mm. and how about rewarding was there anything that was particularly rewarding or anything where you thought oh this is really you know I'll do more of this or this has kind of unlocked something Yes, actually. Yeah, that's um, a good one. Because when I was doing the imitations, I was, of course, obsessed with the things that I'm always obsessed with. So a lot of religious stuff and sort of guilt and sorrow and so on. Sorry about that. That's okay. (laughs) But I did uh, an imitation of Allen Ginsberg based on a bit of the Book of Job. And when I looked at that afterwards, I thought, huh, maybe I should do more of this kind of thing. And that launched me into uh, writing a sequence of modern reversions or revisions of extracts from the Bible and prayers that have now become a part of my forthcoming first collection. So, yes, definitely it did lead to something. So it really did do that thing that you actually sat down and thought, I hope this will unblock me in some way or it will make me think of new directions and new ways, new solutions to the problems. Yeah, it really did. Of course, you can never predict which way it's going to take you. Uh, something like this is quite good for that because there are so many different things that this this syllabus suggests you try that you almost can't help but be led in a, a curious new direction if you actually commit to it. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, Camille, I think you're going to read us a bit more if that's okay. There's a passage from the journal about the sensitivities and strengths as a paradise. And then there's a couple of the poems you refer to, if you don't mind, as the the Stevie Smith one and the Gerard Manley Hopkins. Would you mind? Sure. Does that make sense? um, That does. That seems fine to me. Yeah. My sensibilities and strengths as a paradist seem to be predictably in line with my preferences. I found Dickinson engaging and not too tricky, likewise Frost and Smart after a song to David in form rather than Jubilate Agno. I fell down, though, on E. E. Cummings. The tricky thing about Cummings is the generality of so many of his poems, how they use very standard semi-abstract tropes, tighten them up and arrange them in shapes towards something specific, like a dinner carved entirely from sugar. I'm still working on the closing line of the Stevie Smith parody, which is to sound offhand but also clear. Apart from that, I'm fairly happy with it. The poem as a whole has her kind of weird sardonicism, though it's too formally correct and contains too much music and wordplay, that's me coming through, jangled from them, sand and hay, the native tongue of the nativity. Most successful on the whole, I think, is the Hopkins. From the halfway point especially, it's a strong dark night of the soul poem and the cested, for this was modelled on Hopkins' terrible sonnets right down to the rhyme scheme, is recognisably Hopkins-esque. There's something of me in the blood and thunder identity crisis, but because I share that with Hopkins, I'm able to fade into the background more. I would offer to read you the E.E. Cummings poem as well, but I tried to find it earlier, and I'm afraid it's absolutely covered with scribblings. And I'd have, oh. to, <laughs> I'd have to actually basically translate it for you. So um, yeah, we'll just stick to the ones that I actually, actually ended up publishing. Brilliant. So you're going to read this, D.V. Smith. Nativity. How wise were the wise men anyway? Just wise enough to ask a star to lead the way. They probably wore snowshoes for the journey, jangled from them sand and hay. None of the bovine, ovine audience, should I believe that they regarded the immense, the God-made baby? Oh no, is the native tongue of the nativity nonsense? 
Is each arriving candle shepherd on a shelf in shreds of straw and opening of wealth, not quite divine? And wasn't Herod first to bring the little children to himself? And now, Abel as Cain in the manner of Gerard Manley Hopkins. Black light, restless and backless, roiling night. Two legion raging tempests, testy sound, bounds over boundless hours, coils of ground. Too soon the noonday demons teeming bright. Wait, plough of all, and page and powers call. Come mayday, let my heydayed house and pen then rest in comfort, spared despair once. Then come self, dumb self, torpor corporeal, if come it must. Nonplussed, dashed on the sod, oneself lies. One red-handed, trustless man wanders the bloody sandaled land of Nod. Which one am I? No ones but every one. For love and God, and for the love of God, the starry ooze and grace erased seem gone. Wonderful. That's the blood and thunder that you're referring to. Uh, a little bit. Could you tell? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was terrific. Thank you so much, Camille, for telling us about your... Is the title of it Daydream College for Bards? It is, yeah. It's okay. quite a limited edition at the moment, uh, but I believe the publisher wants to put out a sort of um, less expensive version once this one is all gone. So it's not disappearing, is what I'm saying. Good. Brilliant. Just tell us the title of the collection that's coming out next year. The collection coming out next year is called After You Were, I Am, and it will be published by Favour and Favour, I think, in March. Brilliant. Well, um then we must ask you back on to talk to us about that one yes please thank you well thank you so much for coming thank you camille Still to come on the show, Toby Lishtig on some of the season's big hitters, Zadie Smith, Anne Enright, Daniel Mason and Patrick Langley. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. With that back-to-school feeling in the air, publishers are plying their wares, with some of the autumn's biggest novels appearing in the bookshops and, indeed, on the pages of the TLS, which this week sees a slew of excellent reviews. We've asked Toby Lishtick, the TLS's fiction editor, to help us navigate our way through some key titles and beyond. Welcome, Toby. Hello. Toby, I cannot tell you how excited I am that you're joining us from what I believe is called, over to you... Well, a rage booth. Uh, I think that's just the colloquial term that we've coined in the office. Yes, I am indeed sitting in a glass box in the middle of an open plan office where I can be seen because it is glass, but not heard because it is soundproof. And it's a bit of an experiment, this. Well, at least I've never recorded a podcast on my phone from said rage booth. I think you can hear me. Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. I love the idea that the architects and office designers, all of whom I'm sure are, you know, handsomely rewarded for their very high level skills, probably gave this an entirely different name on the blueprint. Probably like, like a pod booth or pod something. Pod booth, concentration yeah. zone, something, something like that. Break out, break in, and you all call it a rage booth. Should you wish to disappear for a second and have an enormous scream and not be heard, I mean, what possible better design could you come up with? My feeling is that still it's a glass booth, isn't it? And somebody would actually see you sort of stuffing your fist into your mouth, but they wouldn't actually, it would be in the rage booth, no one can hear you scream. And also everyone's busy beaving around, you know, looking at their computers and stuff, so no one's really looking at you. So I think you could get away with them. If I had designed the so-called rage booths, I would have a secret switch which put things to loudspeaker every now and again without the person inside knowing. Well, it's it's possible Wouldn't that, that, that be has fun? been installed and it is possible <laughs> that that is being switched on right at this moment. And that's why, Lucy Dallas, when we are in an authoritarian society, I will look at you through very narrowed eyes. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Even though at the moment I think of you as my compadre, it always pays to be suspicious. Anyway, we have to, goodness me, we must get off this rather sinister topic and talk about fiction, of which there is so much in this week's issue. Toby, you have the groaning desk issue at this time of year, or a bit earlier, rather, in the year. You see them all coming in. Does it make your heart sink or leap for joy? Sore. It makes my heart sore. I wouldn't be in this job otherwise. But actually, September's good because it's June and July when the, when the desks are heaving and then you get all the proofs off. And actually, by September... You know, the books are hitting the bookshops, but at least my part of the deluge has been dealt with because I've commissioned the pieces, I've ideally edited them, and they are, you know, beginning to fall into the paper. And you are absolutely right, there is a lot of fiction in this week's issue because this is our September fiction special. It's a bit like for Vogue, isn't it, doing all the September issues. September issues. It's exactly like Vogue. Exactly like, and Toby is the Anna Winter of this situation. Or the Edward Enninful. <laughs> I'm going to go off piste once more to say that, you know, all of us get little notes with books all the time and emails all the time from publishers. And knowing that they are discharging all these books onto us, the next one that arrives that says, hope you've had a lovely summer. One, it's been raining all summer. And two, I've been deluged with books. <laughs> hope you would have had a lovely summer. So, you know, no, I haven't. I know I'm supposed to like it. I'm supposed to, I do to, like it. I do like it. it. Right. What's in the paper? Enough of me. What's in the paper? Coming up on page three, the first page of the TLS is Claire Loudon on Zadie Smith's The Fraud, which I believe, I mean, in fact, 
I'm sure we discussed this a little bit in the summer books this year, and I think you and Lucy have discussed it elsewhere on the podcast, but we do need to talk about it because it, it is the fiction lead. And it's a very, very nice piece. I mean, Claire is, is a fantastic reviewer. And she situates it, as she, as she always does, in the kind of broader context of Zadie Smith's oeuvre. She doesn't love it. She loves Zadie Smith. In fact, she opens with an excellent observation. No oeuvre is consistently excellent, which makes reviewing your literary heroes a dangerous kind of roulette. And, you know, you can sort of see Claire wrestling with her desire to love this novel and finding that she sort of can't quite bring herself to. She doesn't dislike it. She just thinks it goes on a bit. And actually, I am inclined to agree with her up to a point. I enjoyed it slightly more than Claire did. And I think, Lucy, you enjoyed it slightly more than I did. So we're on a little continuum. We should probably tell listeners what it's about (laughs) before we just whitter on about whether we liked it or not. So it's essentially, it's good old fashioned 19th century novel. And actually, Claire Loudon makes a nice point about how Zadie Smith is very well suited to the 19th century novel. She says she's essentially an old fashioned prose stylist, and she's returned to terra firma with a 19th century. So she's, you know, big, capacious, She's very good at voice. She's very good at character. She's very good at scene setting. She's not afraid to be humorous, but, you know, she'll sort of rove around in that kind of objective 19th century way. And it toggles between, largely between two eras, the the sort of 1830s and early 40s, and then about three decades later. And it essentially, it's three strands. It features this real life novelist called William Ainsworth, who was very, very popular in his day. He out, you know, his one of his books outsold Oliver Twist, it came out at the same time. He was very, very well known. He sort of completely faded into obscurity. And then it also deals with the abolition of the slave trade, but not the abolition of slavery, importantly. So it looks back to the sugar plantations that were still sort of enslaved people in the 1840s and 50s and 60s. And the reason that is linked through is that one of these former slaves who've been working on the colony becomes a witness in a trial, which is the third strand of this novel, and it's called the Tichborne Trial. And it's about this claimant to an estate. So basically, this posh person, young man, died at sea and was going to inherit an enormous estate in England. And 20, 30 years later, this rather rotund man from Australia turned up in England, claiming to be this young posh man. <laughs> terribly, terribly unconvincingly. Not only Very unconvincingly. he has no physical resemblance. None whatsoever. He's gone to Australia, but he's originally he's a butcher from Wapping. He's very much larger than the claimant. I mean, obviously years have passed and he could have been going a bit heavy on the carbs, but even so, he can't speak French. Yeah, which is very important because this young man, Roger Tichborn, was supposed to speak fluent French. And I think he was about 19 or 20 when he died, allegedly died. And it's quite a thing to lose an entire language that you've spoken for 20 years. Anyway, go on. <laughs> and indeed a tattoo, which is the, you know, the last, this sort of triumvirate of things that prove that he's not, in fact, the legal heir to this fortune. But what's what she makes great play of, and I think is I think really works. I think I probably perhaps like this book the most out of any of us talking about it and Claire Loudon writing about it, is that he is taken up as a cause celeb by people who really feel that they've been treated very badly by the privileged. And I thought that worked really well there's a character in the novel called Sarah who is you know she's been a servant and she is now married to William Ainsworth this aging 
novelist. She's very, very much younger than him. And there's a moment when she takes another character to Wapping, where she grew up. And suddenly she goes from this rather sort of comic character who is sort of married above her station, as it were, and has a lot of airs and graces and notions and is trying to find her way into a new life to somebody with real fury who has grown up in this place that nobody knows, nobody understands the reality of. And I found that really powerful. It is very powerful. We suddenly, you're right, we suddenly stopped laughing at her, which mm. Sadie's sort of amusingly been encouraging us to do for hundreds of pages. And we're suddenly faced with the reality of poverty and why one might want to rise above their so-called station in life and, you know, get on from the, the very difficult upbringing they had. And I, I agree that was done very, very well. My cavil about it was that I found it, and Claire agrees with I found it a little bit over-research and I found that by the time we, the Tichborne trial really begins to take over towards the end of the novel, and it's, a, it's quite a long novel, it's about 450 pages, which I don't mind, by the way, I like a long novel. Also, it doesn't read like that somehow, does it? It doesn't read like, well, because it's written in very, lots of very, very short chapters, and she was trying to emulate that sort of Dickensian thing where you're kind of writing a new, new sort of... Uh, piece in the newspaper you know it's, it's serialized so it doesn't it doesn't feel very very long but I felt I felt it got a bit bogged down in the trial I sensed that she was enjoying her research and she was a bit more invested in the trial itself than I was but that was my only real problem with it I just felt it kind of tailed off a bit but I thought the three strands worked very very well together and I thought the characterization of Ainsworth I thought was brilliant this sort of mm. you see him at the beginning as, the, as a young man sort of doing well on the way to success and then and this kind of slightly washed up bit feckless bit entitled and i just thought that was the, yeah that was done fantastically very, very prolific though and very yeah. prolific entirely convinced of his own genius absolutely absolutely he's kind of ridiculous in some ways and very lovable in others and you can balance both of them i had a feeling that the whole book is about it is a bit like a 19th century novel she refers to middle march and stuff in it doesn't she i think it's about sympathies and about finding sympathies where you might not expect them all over the place and I thought the bit about with the Tichborne trial I agree that it does take over a bit but it was really fascinating because it seemed pretty clear to me that she was essentially saying you know, remember when Hillary Clinton called Donald Trump's followers a basket of deplorables which is dismissive I suppose really and I think Zadie Smith is saying look I can you know you can understand the instinct to dismiss people but in fact why don't we have a look and see why they believe this stuff why they're following this person what's going on and I just think the sympathies get kind of larger and larger which I think is really interesting that is right and I think Alex completely nailed it when she said when you know we've been laughing at this Sarah character who would have been you know characterized in that so-called basket of deplorables and then we suddenly we are suddenly mm. kind of made to see the bigger picture and the broader person and it becomes very nuanced so yes I agree with that it is about sympathies and it's also about fraudulence it's about you know it's called the fraud one of the things that links all these things you've got the fraud of the abolition of slavery or the abolition of the slave trade you've got the fraud of the trial and you've got William Ainsworth himself who clearly Zadie Smith considers a bit of a fraud in his latter life I think that those themes did cohere very nicely mm. and of course it's about Andrew Bogle this other character Andrew Bogle is the former slave who is the chief witness as it were for the claimant, for the Australian claimant, and he absolutely insists that he is the man who he says he is. And we don't entirely know why he's doing this, other than perhaps as a sort of a up yours to the British establishment, which is obviously entirely reasonable. But he comes across as a very interesting, nuanced character, this very sort of 
debonair, and dignified old man who's, you know, having these unbelievably, incomprehensibly appalling and brutal youth and early adulthood on a plantation. And uh, yeah, I think I thought she, she dealt with them very, very well. Mm. There's also these very nice little sketches of Dickens who comes in and out. Yes, and she couldn't really resist that, could she? No, and and he's very irresistible character because he's a bit of a vampire. You can see him taking things left, right, and centre, but he's also very smart. And as soon as anyone says anything a bit out of the ordinary, he kind of looks up and takes note. And he's very, very, very good character, and done just about the right amount. You know, out of the corner of your eye, you see Dickens, and then he goes off again. Sadie Smith wrote a piece in the New Yorker about this book, which is very much worth reading. It's, it's a very interesting piece, and Claire Loudon references it in her review. And she sort of talks about the anxiety of influence of Dickens, and then she's like, oh, I couldn't help but bring him in. But you were right, she doesn't overdo it. She could have done, and she doesn't. I'm just going to add to chatting about the process of writing there, because I interviewed Sadie Smith a couple of weeks ago at a festival. I mentioned it on the podcast, I think, last week. But, but one of the things that she did that she's not done before is to emulate in a sense the way that Victorian novelists wrote by sending chapters of the book to a couple of readers as she wrote them so she sort of turned herself into a serial novelist which is fascinating isn't it? Yeah I saw her give a talk about this book and she's yeah she said the same thing she said you know she was just absolutely forced to bow to the discipline of it she had her two or three readers who were waiting for the email every Monday or whenever it was and she knew if she didn't deliver something then they'd have a go at her just 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 like your editor would at a newspaper so yeah I think that is interesting in in a way it, it does help to kind of jolly the narrative along um you know you've got these very very short chapters at times I think this is back to my cavil about the kind of it disappearing into the trial a bit I think in a way she tries to kind of summarize a bit too much of the trial I think there was something about the brevity of the chapters that kind of actually didn't help towards the end but I don't want to go on about the things I didn't like because I do think it's a really really interesting book and it's you know it's her it's Lady Smith's first proper historical novel she's written in the style of in reaction to you know uh, for example the enforcer on beauty but it's the first novel she's set in a very different era and I, I i you know i would happily see her do it again oh i would love to see her do it again yeah yeah, yeah. Ditto. it's a really excellent review that's unsurprising from claire loudon who as you say always situates things in the context of somebody's work so cleverly and sympathetically and i guess this is partly because I agree with her so wholeheartedly. Her regard for On Beauty and NW remains utterly undimmed, as does mine. I think they're two of the best novels written in recent decades. And NW, which she says has a sort of relation to Joyce and to the Ithaca part of Ulysses, was really interesting. I completely agree. I mean, I think NW is one of the best novels this century, or very few. I just think it's absolutely extraordinary. And if anyone's new to Zadie Smith, I would actually still start with NW because I think it's extraordinary. I also thought her follow-up to that, the one before this, Swing Time, was very, very good. Claire begins her piece by saying she overpraised Swing Time and regretted it. I still think Swing Time's an excellent book. But anyway, yeah, I agree. On Beauty and NW. Yeah, I would fly a flag for On Beauty as well. And I'm going to admit to something shocking and shaming, which is that I haven't read NW. <gasps> I know. What a treat. <laughs> what a treat you, you have You do have store. a treat in store. Get thee to a bookshop. I'm going to do it. I am going to do it. Can I shift us on? Yes. To Western Massachusetts. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> so we've got Rern Mateson reviewing a book by Daniel Mason called Northwoods. 
And this is it's sort of, uh, Rowan makes, doesn't actually mention this a piece, but it's, it's part of a kind of little subgenre of novels that are basically based around forests over the centuries with kind of characters sprinkled in amongst them. And I think, Lucy, you're, you're absolutely know what I'm talking about when I, when I say this. I'm referring partly to, well, to Richard Powers' Overstory, which I know you think is fantastic. There's also Annie Prue's Barkskins, which does a very similar thing. You know, you've got sort of three, four hundred years of arboreal interest and human intrigue entwined so i don't know i think they haven't already appeared together on a literature course somewhere they should at some point because i'm sure these books speak to each other in a very very interesting way and it's it's partly that thing of decentering humanity isn't it it's partly a way of saying look the world has been here for a lot longer than we have and it's going to be here for a lot longer than we are going to be here and this is how one aspect of life unfolds via the human lens and starring humans, but there's a lot of other stuff going on as well. And it sounds like I haven't read the book. Have either of you read Northwoods yet? I have read it. I have read it. I you loved have, there you it. go. Well, rather than me banging on about it, you tell me what's so good about <laughs> it because Rowan Mateson loves it and she makes a very, very compelling case for why it's so good. So go on, you tell us. It's set sort of in the forest and then there's a clearing. There's a bit of a natural clearing already near the forest. And so the human activity tends to go on in the natural clearing. So we see who comes along to the clearing and it happens throughout hundreds and hundreds of years. So most of the activity is human, but you always feel the effect of it. And often they go into the forest for solace or to hide or to scream or, you know, for all sorts of reasons. So mostly you do hear the human stories and the humans sort of continue, I mean, a bit like the trees. This is the one thing that actually Rowan Mateson didn't completely love about it is that the humans sort of continue because there are ghosts in mm. it as well. Yeah, she didn't quite buy that, did she? She didn't. And I, I sort of know what she means. Maybe you don't need them, but it does give a nice, there's this feeling of continuity. And it's not, it's clever because it doesn't do the thing of saying humans are kind of pathetic and they don't matter in the scheme of things. It sort of says everything matters. The humans do matter. Of course they do. They have a huge effect on the land. Sometimes you know, good when they cultivate and sort of nurture and sometimes bad. And of course, they have a great effect on each other. But also the trees matter and the animals matter and the bugs matter. There's a brilliant bit when you, you sort of get the point of view from a beetle in a log pile and the beetle's sex life. And that's just, that's a bit of a change of... <laughs> that's a very John McGregor thing to do, isn't it? You know, you think about um, Reservoir 13 where, you know, you've, you've got the goings on in the village and then suddenly you're, you know, you're seeing something from the point of view of a sheep or a crow. Yeah. It also reminds me, Toby, I know this is a book that you really love, Damon Galgut's The Promise. Yes. You know, which is pretty much entirely about human affairs. But I remember him saying that the key to him writing it was to adopt a kind of filmic approach and that once you did that, you could go into other kinds of consciousnesses or you could look at them. Yes, yeah, so he briefly inhabits a bird, doesn't he? Yes, and jackals are circling yes. all the time and you're yeah, kind of yeah. in them. They are the point of view. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think it is definitely something, PhDs will appear, that you are seeing much more frequently in fiction. It's not, as you said, it's not about demoting humanity, but it's the decentering thing, it's that it's not. Not everything always has to come from the human gaze. And that's, yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, and it's a lovely book. I mean, it has lots of great scope because obviously it's all sorts of different characters that come in. So he can have fun with the style, you know, and the characters and what happens. The style changes sort of, you know, slightly according to the consciousness of who we're talking about, as it were, who we're hearing from or hearing about. It's quite beautiful at the end. I was very struck by it. I thought it was terrific. I must read it as the only one of us three, I think, who actually does no, 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 the I forest. No, no, I haven't either, so I'm going to have to read it as well. Let's do that. Now, next up, Toby. So 
there's a little bit of a there's a bit of a historical fiction theme, but there's also a kind of continuity generational theme. I was quite pleased with this spread because I think the pieces speak to each other quite nicely, if I may say so myself. Um, this <laughs> is a piece by Paul Quinn, and it's on a novel by Patrick Langley called The Variations. I'll read his line. Its central conceit is about this thing called the gift, which is the supernatural ability of certain receptive people to channel the voices of their ancestors to commune with the past. And so there's this kind of very, well, this is what I sense from the review, there's a kind of sonority to this book. It's about sounds, it's about voices, uh, ancestral voices, and about how we think about our ancestors and the kind of the generations and it sounds it sounds very 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 beautifully done very 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 sensitive have either of you read the Langley book before I go on no I have not no no not at all no certainly author he's he's another Fitzcarraldo author and we know they do fix some intriguing people for their list his previous novel was called Arcadi which was this evocation of a, a cityscape anyway this is much more about people and their ancestors it sounds really rather beautiful he mentions a wonderful sounding institution Yes, Agnes's, Agnes's hospice for acoustically gifted children, which sounds great. Though I don't think it's a hospice in the sense that they're ill; it's that it makes them better, as it were. Yes, exactly, and it's all about bell ringing. Yeah, it's all it's all about the bells. He says this creation can be placed in the line of weird invented institutions in which gifted adepts are gathered. See also Thomas Pynchon's White Visitation in Gravity's Rainbow or David Foster Wallace's Peoria REC in The Pale King, which I thought was quite a nice little We're making lots of little collections here of books. Yeah, exactly. Mini trends, which is always fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. in the last novel that you're going to talk about, you have Edmund Gordon on Anne Enright's The Wren, The Wren, a novel that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. We had Anne Enright herself explaining uh, where it came from. I mean, he is very, very much pro this novel, isn't he? As was I. And I think you, Lucy. Absolutely. So more themes of kind of inheritance and generation. And this is, you know, this is partly, it's, it's basically a story of a mother and her daughter. Evans absolutely full of praise for Anne Enright. He says she's just the most extraordinary prose stylist. And, you know, you just you just read it for the writing alone, regardless of whatever, whatever else it's about. He talks about how mothers are vivid presences in Anne Enright's fiction. And her previous book was about, it was called Actress. In fact, we um, excerpted a bit in, in the paper whenever it came out, about three or four years ago. And that was about a sort of famous actress mother and how incredibly difficult she was in her relationship with her daughter. The parent in this novel, who's the difficult one, is this philandering poet, father. He kind of disappears and his daughter then has to kind of pick up the pieces and then she has her own daughter, you know, after a slightly peripatetic, chaotic life. And it's really about this woman's relationship with her daughter. But it sounds brilliant, actually. I think Anne Enright's a very, very, very good novelist. And she was it she won the Booker Prize about 15 years ago 13 years ago something like that it's with I mean, the gathering yes with the gathering yeah and she's she's extremely well known but I sort of feel maybe I'm wrong maybe you'll, you'll correct me Alex but I feel like she sort of she hasn't really been appearing in prize lists in the last few years and it doesn't I slightly question that because I feel like pretty much everything she's produced seems to have been universally praised Yes, entirely agree. And I'd say The the Green Road, for me, is one of her, yes. her very best novels. I mean, it's interesting. She's regarded in a much more central way here in Ireland, where I'm, I'm talking. Of from. course, yeah, of course. I don't know if there's a slightly different view in the UK. I wonder if it's a bit like that now everyone goes, oh, yes, there's a new Anne Enright novel. Obviously, that's brilliant. That's almost yeah, too obvious. Yeah. You know, you know, like middle, late stage Hilary Mantel, when everyone was like, oh, yeah, there's another brilliant novel by Hilary Mantel, except weirdly... 
you know, that was it, it wasn't sort of remarkable. Yeah, she did keep winning Booker Prizes or whatever. But, but you're right. Uh, yeah, it seems it does seem a little bit unfair that, you know, you, you carry on producing extraordinary work and everyone takes it. Which a bit like, oh, yeah, that's very, to... very good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's not like she's not famous, but maybe a little bit more Anne Enright love for everybody, please. Mm. Definitely. Definitely from the podcast. The opening pages of it, which we didn't get a chance to to talk about the opening pages is just a sort of introduction to the to the daughter thinking and she's got all these interesting things about consciousness and how other people experience things i was completely blown away by the first four pages and i could have just you know heard her talk about that for the rest of the book and then she doesn't and i thought oh well, well why hasn't that come up again and then then i thought well it, consciousness of course has come up again many times it just comes up from underneath as it were if that makes sense yeah it does make sense and she's funny as well very funny, yeah. So, Toby, all in all, lot to grapple with in the fiction pages of the TLS, but that is not everything, is it? There are a lot of other novels, and you, you, I'm sure, are still getting through them, as it were. Yes, there are, there are many other novels. <laughs> what are you reading at the minute? Anything brilliant? I am actually reading something completely brilliant. It's not out for a couple of months, and it's by Walter Kempowski, German novelist who died a few years ago. He sort of arriving in English a bit late as it were um you know there are still many untranslated novels by him the book that I absolutely loved that came out in English about four or five years ago is called All for Nothing it's set during the Second World War it is absolutely extraordinary this one is called An Ordinary Youth it's out in November and it's essentially it's about his childhood in 1930s and early 40s Germany and it's it's just so incredibly written it doesn't sound like a very good description. It's very well written, but it is. I mean, he, I just think he's an extraordinary novelist. So I'm enjoying that at the moment. But yeah, that won't hit the shelves here till November, I'm afraid. We've got lots of other stuff coming in the fiction page in the next couple of weeks. We've already had the new Sebastian Falks novel reviewed by Andrew Motion. We've got uh, Lauren Groff's new novel, which is being reviewed by Claire Loudon in a couple of weeks. I'm just putting the pages together for next week. We've got Paul Lynch's The Prophet Song, which has been long-listed for the Booker Prize and I suspect might get shortlisted by this time next week, which sounds really brilliant. It's about a, sort of an authoritarian future dystopian island where things kind of very, very slowly but inexorably turn very, very dark and the effect of that politics on one family. So, yeah, lots of exciting stuff still coming out. Watch out for that, Alex. Watch out for a, a dystopian future creeping up on you. Yeah, there you go. We exactly. should probably all watch out for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Toby, thank you so much. I'm, I must say I'm particularly looking forward to reading the new Lauren Groff novel. I absolutely loved Matrix. A subset of novels about, about nuns, basically. Yes, there you go. That's another PhD. We've got a lot of subsets. We could, we set, we could set a whole curriculum from this one, couldn't we? Yeah. yeah, but I think we ought to let Toby out of the rage booth now. I think we should. That's true. He's been trapped in there long enough. Okay, I'm going to go have a good, good scream and say goodbye to you. Thank you very <laughs> Thank much, you so Toby. Much. Take care. have time for this week our thanks go to toby lishtig and camille ralphs and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye 